Hogan, countrymen, lend me good ears. <laughs> Welcome to this Fuds on Film podcast. I am Scott Morris and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Craig Eastman. You can get us all beat away for good. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, in this podcast, uh, after the sad news other month there of director Michael Sabino's death, we thought it would be appropriate to take a bit of a look over his body of work for your listing pleasure. Uh, we're going to cover the bulk of his output, uh, certainly feature film-wise, as both a screenwriter and a director. Uh, we'll be looking at Silent Running, Magnum Force, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, Year of the Dragon, The Sicilian, Desperate Hours and The Sun Chaser. So that's a... Uh, a good number of things for us to get into. Sabiro himself started his career directing commercials, but we're picking up his story as he turns to script writing. He'd actually drafted a few scripts that he'd later go on to direct before his first credited screenplay showed up in cinemas. That is the 1972 sci-fi film Silent Running. This was directed by special effects supremo Douglas Thurmbull and has gone on to be something of a touchstone in the 70s miserablest doom-laden sci-fi subgenre. (laughs) (laughs) Doomed hippie sci-fi. Yes, there's there's certainly no jaunty, absolutely crazy (laughs) Robinson Crusoe on Mars stuff here. Um, It is not... Is that a good or a bad thing, Scott? I think in this instance a bad thing. (laughs) Um, What it is not regardless of what Wikipedia's synopsis might tell you, is a post-apocalyptic sci-fi film. No. You can tell this because, as a general rule, societies that have suffered an apocalyptic event do not spend any precious remaining resources on orbital arboretums, nor on (coughs) equipping said space gardens with pool-playing robots. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It was a difficult cost to justify. There was a bit of pushback from the accounts department. (laughs) Yes. Complicated um, by not having a receipt for them. <laughs> yeah, pool playing robots not recognised on Maslow's hierarchy of needs as far as I'm aware. <laughs> at, least, <laughs> at least let me have the tax write-off on the pool playing robots. <laughs> Your famous, famous charities. <laughs> anyway, from what precious little detail the film dishes out, it sounds it's rather more like a Soylent Green scenario. There's a mm. vastly overcreated... Over- Vastly overcrowded planet, difficult living conditions, and food manufacturers en masse rather than grown organically. Indeed, it seems the situation is so bad that all the landmass has been given over to urbanisation, but those forward-thinking eggheads and boffins have decided to hedge their bets on biodiversity by building a number of uh, massive orbital greenhouses to host the plant and animal life displaced in case they're ever needed to replant the earth. On board one of them greenhouses, uh, called the Valley Forge, is the humourless, touchy, space hippie Freeman Lowell, uh, played by Bruce Dern. Uh, he's accompanied by three 12-year-old boys in adults' bodies that, for reasons we'll get to soon enough, we don't really need to concern ourselves with. Uh, <laughs> also on board are three wobbling maintenance robots who go a long way to proving that bipedal robots are a terrible idea. <laughs> Uh, Lowell decides to take drastic action when an order comes through to scuttle the greenhouses and return to Earth. The decision by itself seems questionable, surely Mm. having done the difficult part of hauling oak trees into space. The running costs can't be that significant. (laughs) Um, But at any rate, Lowell refuses and sets about hijacking the ship, only very slightly reluctantly murdering his man-child co-workers in the process. Yes. Uh, The rest of the film shows Lowell making a break for freedom, aided by the robots that he reprograms to help with tending the plants and playing poker to the best of their roundly inadequate manipulator arms ability. These are terrible, terrible robots. Uh, (laughs) Although this doesn't stop Lowell having a more caring relationship with them than any of the humans formerly on board the ship. 
Crisis comes in two forms in the final act, as an approaching rescue ship threatens to expose the lies Lowell came up with to cover his murder and hijacking, and more pressingly for Lowell, the plants that he cares for so much are dying because, incredulously, the botanist assigned to look after the plants hasn't realised that plants need sunlight to survive, making him both a murderer and a clueless buffoon. <laughs> Having fixed this... It's not looking so good for him. No. Having fixed this with the appropriate artificial lightning, he thankfully puts himself out of our misery when he realises that the only hope for the survival of the greenhouse is to jettison it into space to drift along, tended by the remaining robot seemingly armed only with one battered tin can to cover several acres of greenhouse, while Lowell scuttles the rest of the Valley Forge and himself, bringing this ludicrous display to a thankful end. <laughs> um, some people seem to like this film and take it seriously. I cannot for the life of me fathom why. <laughs> Uh, the only positive I can take from it, as you might expect with Trumbull on board, the effects work, specifically the models, mm. are really well handled. Yeah. Um, Some of them still look all right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, clearly would have been state of the art of the day. And yeah, as you say, they still look, still hold up quite well today. Um, everything else, well, the supposed hero is a clown who's only one corpse away from short of being a mass murderer, mm-hmm. uh, who was unlikable enough before he started flipping out and killing people, which doesn't really help with the whole empathy thing. And there's not really much in the way of the story after the event, uh, reducing to a number of vignettes of Lowell losing his sanity, which might have been more effective if the character wasn't a cold-blooded murderer, a point I feel I need to come back to fairly often, lest you forget what you're being sold here. And also, perhaps, if he wasn't being played by Bruce Dern, it would help, as his gurning does not sit well with me. whose acting style has always made it very difficult for me to discern between him and the three robots. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Its ecological message uh, is valid enough But after being beaten about the head with it for 90 minutes I'm left with the urge to go and start a forest fire (laughs) This film makes my It's the dawning of the age of Aquarius (laughs) (laughs) Yeah Uh, This film makes my teeth itch Take it away from me uh, I think you've said all that needs to be said I mean, obviously this isn't a a, As you point out, it's not a directorial effort from Michael Cimino And Mm. I think um, I think we can probably chalk this one up to um, Michael Cimino's bill-paying period. As as a writer, I don't think that was Cimino's forte. Um, if this helped him along the route towards his career in directing, then I'm sure it was of merit to him. But it's of it's of very little merit to me, other than as a curiosity. Mm. I mean, as mm. as you um, as you rightly point out, I know enough people who actually hold this movie non-ironically in some. Yeah. <laughs> some level of regard but i remember being i remember being stricken by it i think pro- i probably first saw this in my very early teens maybe just pre-teen actually and i remember being really excited by it um but as we've discussed before in the podcast i think when we were in a disaster episode and talking about my my initial affection for the movie meteor uh, a lot <laughs> of that can be put down to the fact that as a young child <laughs> I was just willing to give anything a pass on the basis of space. Um, <laughs> fascinated by the final frontier as I was. But, I mean, reviewing this now, I mean, I most recently saw this probably a couple of years ago, I think. I made the mistake of watching it on um, uh, on satellite TV. And, yeah, um, made a stab at revisiting it for this podcast. But I'm not going to lie, I got about half an hour in. And, and um, yeah, I remember this. I remember how pointless an endeavour this is and how just how silly I was as a child. Um, and so, yeah, it's very difficult to recommend uh, as anything other than a curio. But, I mean, fill your boots if that's your um, cup of tea. But I think in terms of the career arc of Michael Cimino, it's of... Um, 
it's of nominal interest only. Yes, a bad starting point. Um, we mm. can be rather more positive about Semino's second screenwriting credit, which is Magnum Force, uh, mm. the sequel to Dirty Harry. And indeed, we already have been uh, a year ago to the very day, I think, in our Clint Eastwood episode. And mm. uh, I don't think we need to be repeating ourselves too much. So the basics of it uh, are simply that Harry Callahan, uh, Clint Eastwood, of course, uh, finds himself investigating a string of vigilante killings of career criminals, eventually tracking it back to a group of young cops taking the law into their own hands. And Harry must put a lead-based stop to this. Uh, perhaps this was a response to the understandable, but I think incorrect accusations of the first film's glorification of police violence and fascistic leanings. Mm. And this rather more explicitly shows Harry as an upholder of the law, an uncompromising tough cop for sure, but a servant of the law, not a rewriter of it. And uh, surprisingly, well, perhaps not surprisingly, it's a very still a very enjoyable film, and it's one that holds up as well, perhaps better than the original Dirty Harry. Yeah. Um, and that is not something you can say of any of the other of the sequels to Dirty Harry. No. <laughs> and yes, uh, certainly very much well worth watching in the unlikely event that you haven't already seen it. Yeah, I think before the franchise <clears throat> disappeared down the plug hole of, you know for the money um sequels this this and the original dirty harry are probably the only two that you need to need to own um i think as a piece of cinema it's it's not as it's not as impactful as uh the original dirty harry mm -hmm. um arguably but i think yeah you might be right in that it probably it's probably it's probably a slicker watch nowadays because its focus and its pace is a lot more contemporary feeling than yeah. I think Dirty Harry was. So it's more um, in the language of cinema. It's a it's a a much more contemporary piece than the sort of couple of years in between the production of the two movies would otherwise suggest. But this is it's in terms of again um, Semino's uh, career arc as a as a writer. You're starting to see some of the more typical aspects of his um, his focus coming through. So it's dealing with some sort of it's dealing with issues which are internal to America. So for him in this instance, it's about the police corruption. As you say, as much as much of a reaction to the criticisms of the first movie as anything else but you do get the impression that he does genuinely want to explore um, mm. that topic and secondly and perhaps most importantly this <laughs> this much more than silent running um, highlights Semino's uh, preference for seeing people shot in the head and whatnot, or just shot, <laughs> just shot in general um, and in the case of one poor woman shot in the breast um, <laughs> and knocked out of a window <laughs> Um, so it's uh, yeah, it's it's an entertaining watch. Not not for the reasons I've just highlighted there. I must point out. I don't want to sound like a, a, a massive uh, sociopath or anything. Uh, it's an interesting watch. It's a it's a pretty slick film, visceral in places, um, and I think that's probably uh, Semino's touch there uh, more than it is the director's touch. But yeah. yes, uh, certainly if if you want a jumping on point for some sort of respect um retrospective and you're interested in his work as a writer as much as a as a a director then this is probably the the place you want to start yes and it marked a pivotal point in Sabino's career as during the shooting of this he got a script for that he'd already completed uh, for Thunderbolt mm. and Lightfoot in front of Clint Eastwood who was interested enough to pick it up and star in it which opened the door for Sabino to direct uh, so yes his first f film as a director uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot this unusually named film sees a young thief tearing out of a car showroom in a half-inched motor this is Lightfoot played by an impossibly young-looking Jeff Bridges uh, mm -hmm. which <laughs> solves half of the 
film's naming conundrum. He soon picks up what is what seems to be a preacher running away from an assassin, but who, in the fullness of time, is revealed as a notorious bank robber nicknamed Thunderbolt, played by Clint Eastwood. Ah, I see what which, happened there. Solving our paragraph-long national nightmare of why this film is named the way that it is. Uh, so, um, Thunderbolt has been hiding out as his uh, former gang members are hunting him down, wrongly convinced that he's swindled them out of their cut. Although, frankly, explaining why they're wrong would take more time than is really worth. Uh, so, let's skip on to saying that the initial stages of the film have Lightfoot and Thunderbolt, and boy do these character names not get less annoying the more you have to say them, uh, running away from gang members tracking them down, Red Leary, played by George Kennedy, and Eddie Goody, played by Joffrey Lewis, in something that's halfway between a chase movie and a road trip. Uh, this pivots somewhat abruptly once Red and Eddie corner our protagonists, once Thunderbolt convinces them they hadn't double-crossed them, and Lightfoot suggests a repeat, more or less, performance of their previous heist. Red and Eddie agree after a bit of arm twisting, but there's always a question of whether they all really trust one another, leading to the inevitable double crosses and some tone-destroyingly grisly and plain sad ends for a film that's been a light-hearted knockabout caper, at least until the final reel. That said, the severe tonal whiplash towards the end is the only thing that sticks out in Samino's directorial debut as a outright misstep. The story's on the thin side, but it's serviceable, and uh, I might well be singing a different tune if Eastwood and Bridges hadn't been cast in central mm-hmm. roles, an awful lot of the movie co-spy on their charisma alone, uh, which helps uh, <laughs> spackle some of the gaps in the narrative. Uh, as first films go, it's solid and an enjoyable effort. It's not, however, one that demands viewing from a historical perspective uh, by itself, uh, but it's an enjoyable diversion should you stumble upon it. Nice. I'm interested now, actually, because I didn't have a chance to watch Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, so I can't comment on it, but I'm interested in um, some of what you've said there and how it might compare to one of the films we'll talk about a little bit later on, which was... um Year of the Dragon, but we shall we shall mm-hmm. come to that and we shall come to that in due course. What's next on the agenda? Uh, well, next we have the little known indie hit, The Deer Hunter. Oh, so. we're up to the Deer Hunter already. Yes. Oh, dearie me, talk about a <laughs> <laughs> talk about one giant leap for mankind. Yeah. Um, can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine the anticipation amongst the rifle loving outdoors demographic of Middle America, circa <laughs> nineteen seventy-eight, Scott? It must have been palpable. Was uh, was Robert this film De Niro... about deer hunting coming out? It sounds like it'll be good. I like deer hunting. I yes. like hunting deer. This is going to be a nice, feel-good family entertainment about shooting Bambi. About real men. Was uh, I think the primary question there had to be on people's lips was going to be: Was Robert De Niro going to be a three hundred eight Winchester Magnum guy, or or perhaps one of those hardcore home ammo enthusiasts who necks seven millimeter Remington cases to take two eighty four rounds? Oh man, Scott. <laughs> How awesome would it be if he turned out to be a compound bow guy who smeared himself in buck species and slept naked in a tent made of his own flesh or something for three years before the hunt? This is going to be... This is going to be used piano wire for close quarters combat. This is going to be the best movie ever. 
Imagine then the dismay at what turned out to be three hours of arse-numbing polemic against the Vietnam War, <laughs> the human impact of its indiscriminate psychological atrocities, I don't know why I'm laughing, upon the blue-collar menfolk of the Rust Belt and its effect on the American psyche in general. Only now do I realise geographically where Pennsylvania is situated on a map of the states and that it is nowhere near the Rust Belt, but never mind. <laughs> if you haven't seen The Deer Hunter, you are probably doing yourself a disservice which is not to say that viewing it is necessarily an enjoyable process. Uh, joining Apocalypse now among the pantheon of great American movies that turned an inward eye toward the USA's involvement in one of the most divisive, dehumanising conflicts of recent memory, or just human memory, uh, is a poster child not just for cinema as social introspection, but also the application of bold narrative choices that seem to cap the experimental willingness of the 70s golden era quite fittingly. The movie chronicles the fortunes of a group of Pennsylvania steelworkers. Mike, Robert De Niro, Nick, Chris Walken, Steve, John Savage, Stanley, John Cazal, a man who I still miss, uh, well, I didn't know him personally, but <laughs> whose screen presence I think is sorely missed today. Axel, um, Chuck Aspergren, and John, uh, George, I've never known how to pronounce his surname, Zunza. Uh, Steve's marriage to his partner Angela is imminent and for him, Mike and Nick, the ceremony will be a last chance to spend time together with their friends and families before heading to Vietnam, having volunteered to serve their country. In unorthodox and no doubt audience-baffling narrative fashion, much of the first act of the movie is occupied with the wedding ceremony, followed by a deer-hunting trip which highlights tensions amongst the group and establishes Mike's trust in Nick alone as his wingman in matters as important as blowing the head off defenceless animals. <laughs> the transition to Vietnam <laughs> takes some time and is jarringly abrupt, placing the viewer immediately at the centre of the chaos and confusion of war in a way that predates Private Ryan by some 20 years. It's a bold narrative shift, no doubt designed to pull the rug out from under the audience, and it proves very effective in conveying how quickly and utterly the US found the waters of war rising above its head. Uh, Semino, never one to shy away from harsh brutality, throws our trio of friends almost immediately into a genuinely harrowing game of forced Russian roulette at the hands of a group of Viet Cong captors. It's perhaps the movie's most famous scene, and with good reason, but it must have been a tough pill to swallow for home audiences while the wounds were very much still healing. De Niro and Walken both might never have bettered their performances in this scene, let alone throughout the rest of the movie. Alas for our characters, it will not prove the last time that we see the pair face each other across the table with a loaded gun in hand. It's probably difficult for modern audiences to appreciate the total audacity of Semino's approach, crafting not so much a movie as a cultural punch to the gut that, whilst unflinching to this day, uh, it must truly only have been felt upon release. Uh, often mentioned in the same breath as Apocalypse Now, it's blatantly disingenuous to compare the two, with Coppola's undeniably groundbreaking opus nonetheless closer to Alice in Wonderland with guns than the story being told here. <laughs> um, pretty much everything about The Deer Hunter is cinema firing on all of its most potent cylinders, backed by innumerable career-best performances. When Meryl Streep's presence fades into the subconscious over a movie's running time, you know there is some serious <laughs> thespin going down, and it's honestly very difficult to find any fault whatsoever amongst the movie's cast. By the time we return to Pennsylvania, minus one member of the group, both the characters and we, the audience, find ourselves not so much having reached a resolution as preparing for a long journey to recovery. I'd forgotten just how excellent a movie The Deer Hunter is, having last viewed it many moons ago when my faculties were still very much forming. Uh, revisiting it now strikes me how much of a kick in the teeth it still represents and that it has probably remained the ne plus ultra of Vietnam movies. 
Regardless of whatever else Semino did or did not accomplish, much of which we will discuss in this podcast, um, throughout his career, he most certainly remained the holder of a respect pass on the strength of this, his best movie alone. Quite remarkable. And this is the point, Scott, at which you probably turn around and say, I've never liked The Deer Hunter. <laughs> well, I've never been able to watch The Deer Hunter. Um, having now <laughs> actually got my way through it, I, I think I at least three occasions that I remember I've sat down to watch The Deer Hunter and got about half an hour to 45 minutes in and went bored now and went off and did something else, which is rare for me. Uh, but there is something about this film that I, I just cannot get on with. Uh, mm, it is white whale. <laughs> there is, look, it's there's two hours of fantastic cinema in there and one hour of turgid nonsense at the start. Uh, the, the whole first hour <laughs> act of the wedding scene, I think, is... Uh, it's, it, a it difficult, makes, it's a difficult sell. Uh, it's not so much that the idea of it annoys me. It's like, obviously, it's a good idea to get to know some of these characters, but I think mm. it's just misguided in that you learn far more, in my opinion, about everyone that's not a main character in that first hour mm-hmm. than you do about the main characters themselves. There's right, that's, of- in, that's interesting because that, yeah, that's very much a thought I think I'd held in my head over the, the first couple of times that I watched it, but sorry, carry on. Yeah, it, it seems like there's a lot of really nice little touches about characterization, uh, particularly from the uh, going into some of the other guys, like John Casale's performance particularly. Uh, but I don't feel in that whole hour I learn anything more than you could have got across in about five minutes about mm. your actual two leads, um, you know, De Niro and uh, Walken. And if I learn anything at all about John Savage over the course of this entire film, yeah, I must have missed it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's just... Uh, it's some narrative in flabbiness in that first hour, and I, I find it is very difficult to get through. I think it's just a bad hour of film. Mm. There's two fantastic hours after it, but you really have to take your licks first uh, to actually get to it. But uh, yeah, when you get into the, the whole Vietnam narrative and everything that happens after that, yeah, it, it's a terrific film from that point on. But it's, I just find it difficult to call a film a bona fide classic when a full third of it is poor, in my opinion. I just don't like it. The other two hours are as good as cinema can get, probably in terms of its emotional impact and what it can show about a conflict like this and the effect that it can have on them. It's obviously not particularly, or indeed at all, um, historically accurate, which we'll mm. come to in future <laughs> films as well. Um, but uh, it doesn't Wait. matter. It, it, as as many people say, it does capture the you know the, the actual feeling, the the kind of a greater truth of the Vietnam War and how the effect that it had on America. That's that is fantastic stuff. But yeah, that that first hour is just tough. <laughs> yeah, I see where you're coming from with that. I think I, I I feel like I want to give him a pass for that. And and as much as I as much as I really really enjoyed. The Deer Hunter again watching it recently I do I do I, it's not that I find that first hour enjoyable to watch it is a bit of a trudge I think it probably works better on a first viewing if you only if if you're watching this film for the first time I think that first hour probably works better because I feel like rather than rather than necessarily character development I feel it's a bit more about sort of community development or way of life development and the notion is that the movie wants to say look at this particular class of people rather than these mm. characters individually and you know let's get let's get comfortable with this class of people and this this particular way of life now look what we did as a country to these people when we sent them off to fight although ironically the characters here I think weren't conscripted they they chose to go and fight <laughs> which seemed it's, which seems an odd narrative choice and maybe I'm missing something something there um but i yeah that i mean even now uh, like i've got to be honest and say that I, 
I watched the first hour at double speed. <laughs> just just to get through that because there actually isn't a lot to be gleaned from it in terms of character. And it is in the it is in the latter two thirds of the film that um stuff comes to the fore. But I had a sne- I had I don't know why, but I had a sneaking suspicion that you were gonna have a contrary well not necessarily a fully contrary opinion, but um something less glowing to say about the deer hunter. I still think it remains like a, a, a touchstone um in modern American cinema, but definitely I think I understand where you're coming from in that first hour. Um, I mean, uh, did you still did you still find obviously that transition from the sort of the first hour to the second hour? Did you still find that impactful, or were you just kind of too numbed by that that first hour of exposition to to feel the to feel the kick of that? Um, I guess I did. It's certainly a very jarring transition. I mean, well, you say transition, it's not even transition. It's a no. uh, it's a slam cut, and uh, yeah. it, it, it does work uh, very effectively. Uh, and it's not like it's just going into Vietnam as they're chopping in any part somewhere. It's, it's almost immediately as he uh, Mike decides to barbecue someone for. Yeah, it feels like it's actually <laughs> in the aftermath of a major battle. It's not even yeah, 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 yeah. drop exactly. you into a big battle, or it's like okay, here's the point where just the last few survivors are mopping each other up. Yeah, and as I say, from that point on, it is a classic film. It's just the the front loading of it makes it difficult to wholeheartedly mm. recommend. I guess I'd have to two thirds of a heartedly uh, recommend yeah. it. But you from that point on, it is still a classic. And just to reiterate the things you said, it is such a tremendously brave film uh, to make, especially when the wounds would have been so close uh, from the, the conflict itself. Mm. It's the sort of analysis of a war you would expect to see 30, 40 years later, uh, yeah. rather than you know when it's. Uh, right on the on the cusp of, of memory. Um, yeah, I think it's startlingly mature in that respect. Yeah, and it, it, again, it, it doesn't really pull any punches. It's not explicitly having anyone go on a tirade against how this is a you know against the American mm. dream, but just that even something like the last scene of them just uh, singing. It just makes it so effective in terms of getting that across without actually rubbing your face in it about how yeah. this is this is not what the promise of America was, and uh, the, the horrors that this has inflicted upon people uh, much more than something like uh, well uh, Jacob's Ladder had from just a, mm-hmm. a few podcasts ago. Uh, so yeah, there, there's a lot of great things in here, and you know it's a fantastic turn from Walking and De Niro. Um, Walking in particular, mm. um, it is strange. From him in particular, well, actually, both these guys, uh, when you watch their earlier work and realise how great they were, yeah. and while they're still not so much that they're not great now, but now they're quite happily uh, descending into self parody. Yeah, and, like uh, Walken, particularly, right, is, is it's hard to remember a point in his career where he wasn't hammy Walken. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and this is most definitely not. Yeah, I know absolutely what you're talking about there. This is, I still think now when I look back, this is, this is the least Walken of Walken performances, and is yeah. all the better for it. I think. Yes. Uh, what else do we see in this film? I guess we also see the beginnings. There's elements of it in Thunder, uh, uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, where Samino is not only a great director, but. Um, I assume it's himself rather than a cinematographer, but he, he's able to create some very stunning shots. He mm. clearly loves his, some mountains. Oh, yes. The, those shots in the kind of mountain ranges is just uh, absolutely perfectly done, and we'll see that in pretty much everything we talk about from here on in. Um, yeah, but a very beautiful film when it needs to be, and mm. obviously that's a, a stunning contrast with the absolute <laughs> horrors that he, he manages to put with that, that prison of war in the particular, beast. which yeah. is... 
oh, just um, a shocking and <laughs> achieved not by special effects or something, but largely just by submerging your lead actors and rubbing rats on them, uh, which yeah. <laughs> <laughs> having them react appropriately. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, stunning stuff from that point, and uh, everything that happens from there on in is also just a, just one emotional. Uh, gut punch after another so yes it, it all works terrifically well from that point on it's a, a great film when it actually gets to Vietnam but I'm not so convinced mm. that the, the journey to get there is necessarily worth an hour of your time yeah so I think we're broadly in agreement <coughs> on it as a film in, in general but we probably have different opinions on how necessary the well, probably only slightly different opinions on how necessary that first hour is. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's an interesting experiment. If any of you listening haven't watched The Deer Hunter yet, do us a favour and just jump in at the hour mark. It yeah. might feel jarring, but it's going to it's going <laughs> it's going to jar anyway in a couple of minutes. So yeah, and let, let us know what you think of it as just a war movie without the yeah. wedding shit. Yeah, here's what you need to know. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> basically, absolutely. There's one guy who talks about one shot a bit, and there's another guy at Lake Street. That's pretty, actually that is pretty succinct. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, regardless though, off the back of um, the Deer Hunter, the critical praise, the Oscars, um, it's not hard to see why Semino was pretty much given a blank check yeah. uh, for <laughs> for his next movie, Heaven's Gate. A regrettable course of action, as it turned out, yes. for United Artists. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. schoolboy error. But um, n- not necessarily that it's a, a, a bad, bad movie, or again, perhaps your opinion will differ, but I, I digress, or certainly I, I, I get ahead of myself. Um, chronicling the real-life events of the 1890 Johnson County War, Wyoming, albeit with some obvious artistic license, <laughs> Heaven's Gate is a movie perhaps more remembered for its impact on its studio, director and stars than on audiences. Chris Christopherson is Johnson County Sheriff James Averill, a Harvard-educated man of privilege who journeys to the town of Casper to find that the County Stock Growers Association are openly arming hired guns in an effort to rid the county of the perceived threat of a burgeoning immigrant underclass. The head of the association, a man by the name of Canton, Sam Watterson, has created a death list of 125 immigrants whom he accuses of cattle rustling to feed their families and who are to be put to death, clues in the name, by a band of bounty hunters at a rate of $5 a day plus $50 for every immigrant they shoot or hang. You won't find a better deal than that. Uh, Despairing at the blatant mistreatment of the lower classes, uh, which Canton assures him is fully sanctioned by all levels of the government up to and including the president, Avril puts himself at odds with the association and in particular their foremost hired gun, Nate Champion, Chris Walken, an old friend of Avril's who also forms the third corner of a love triangle betwixt the sheriff and his brothel-owning lover Ella, uh, played here by Isabel Huppert. Avril's attempts to garner support from the military are scuppered by the realisation that the powers that be have already informed the local garrison to keep well away from matters relating to the association, and further fuel is added to the personal fire of our protagonist by the revelation that Ella is one of the names on the death list, a fact of which Nate claims to have been unaware. Following an intermission, those were still a thing in 1980, Mm. uh, things come to a... (laughs) And also a bit of a recurring theme in uh, in Semino's works that they will be long. Things come to a head in a second act which is markedly more bleak than the first, with a pretty steep ramping up of violence and an unsettling rape scene, all perpetrated by the association who are now poised to make their move against the immigrants. Heaven's Gate is many things, most notably an observation of the inevitability with which the elite will always dominate the poor in any society. It is well formulated, well shot, well acted, and a pretty good example of an unrushed narrative given over to its characters. 
What it is most definitely not is the studio-busting, audience-alienating debacle it has for the last 36 years uh, been portrayed to be. Setting aside the myths surrounding this movie, most propagated of which being that it bankrupts United Artists, hint, it didn't, it is by no means perfect and certainly not Semino's best from amongst the limited pool uh, which I personally have seen. It does not, however, warn anything like the reputation it garnered in the wake of its release and which blighted many of those involved for decades to come, to a degree where I find it bizarre and almost impossible to conceive that it was quite so ridiculed. But, Ridiculed it was, the lore growing bigger than the movie, and only in recent years has Gate begun to make any headway in its case for reassessment. I can't imagine this movie will ever climb the mountain of masterpiece to a degree such as, say, Kubrick's Barry Lyndon has done recently, Uh, but I feel I can say with confidence that it is a good movie, and perhaps, in fact, a really good movie. Mileage, as always, will vary, but if you've flirted with the notion of a viewing in the past and been put off, I heartily recommend you satisfy your curiosity. You might just like it. I kind of liked it, Scott. I kind of didn't, but I'm certainly not on the uh, hate train that it had back in original days. Shall we we meet in the middle? Strange. I think we probably would. Um, Well, I think is the warning sign on this is that when you give your plot recap there, you Mm. hit pretty much everything that happened in the film. Yes. And it's a film that's three and a half hours long. Yes. And you didn't talk for very long there, did you? Um, (laughs) And this film... It is perhaps guilty of um, not quite getting to the point succinctly enough. Yes. And this film had a first cut of five and a half hours, at which point there seems to be just reels and reels and reels of material that's absolutely beautiful but serves no purpose whatsoever, narratively or character-wise. And uh, that's perhaps it's uh, the main thing that, uh, that annoys me, and it, uh, it is a little bit too meandering. It frequently looks absolutely beautiful, as you say. There's there's one mm. scene in particular where one of the trains pulling at the station with the mountains of background. That's yes. just, that's just a beautiful shot. Yeah. Um, this is uh, well, a lot of it is as you might imagine, Barry Lyndon esque, uh, but. There's a number of strange things going on there. Uh, there's a whole, the whole starting prologue in the 1870s with uh, Avril Lavigne generating from Harvard goes on for a long time. Looks tremendously lavish and expensive, but serves no purpose whatsoever. Uh, indeed, John Hurt's entire performance serves no purpose whatsoever. <laughs> what is he doing? Get him out of here! What, yeah. What yep, on yep. earth is the point of that? Um, and there's other characters who normally perform quite well and then some points just go off and have very strange little moments for no particularly good reason, like um, Christopher Walken's Last yep. Stand, where he does his Butch Cassidy tribute act. Uh, and just <laughs> before he walks out of the burning shack that he's in to get properly Bolivian armied, uh, he takes a moment to write a note to the effect of, Dear Ella, yep. I, am in a, I am in a burning shack about to be shot to bits. Whoops. Love yep. Nathan. And then yeah, exits. Good, good luck. Good luck to you and Avril. <laughs> yes, uh, exits the shack to meet a sustained volley of gunfire that's self-parodic in nature. Um, <laughs> he, he's almost shot for as long as that poor Omnicorp schlub in the boxed Ed Two Hundred Nine demo <laughs> in Robocop. There's an, there's an intermission in the middle of him being shot. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely ludicrous. <laughs> it just sticks out like a sore thumb. Uh, um, but yes, it, it, it does at least pick itself up in the, the action uh, stakes towards the end. Um, it's perhaps a little bit, uh, a little bit harsh in the way that it's uh, get it, trying to get its messages across about the mm. the state of uh, 
again, the American dream being corrupted by the 1%. Um, it, it is, but as a film that's looking to sort of demystify and unromance the Wild West as well, yeah. it, it, it's certainly effective in making no bones about how rough a life it was. You know, it's just a non-stop parade of fights and murder and death and abuse and intolerance. Mm. Uh, and, you know, again, there's a lovely contrast between these beautiful landscapes and the ugliness of what's going on. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> it's, ch- it's chambered in the same magazine as uh, films like Once Upon a time in the West, in that respect, yeah. which which feel like director saying, "Look, stop, stop rabbiting on about how great the old West was. It was an absolutely shit time to live in and a terrible <laughs> place for anyone to be. Yes. There's not a lot to be proud about." <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Uh, it does appear that, however, the closest thing that, uh, well, the closest that Heaven's Gate comes to the little literal truth of the Wild West is that there's some documentary evidence of a country called America existing in this time frame, mm-hmm. and possibly a place called Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everything else, total fiction. Mm. Um, again, you might be using the same argument in terms of uh, you would using Deer Hunter its fiction in service of a greater truth, but on its own terms, everything in this film is a total lie, which makes it a bit difficult to, to get a hold up in a regard of it being a historical document or anything like that. Um, but uh, yes, you could really have a, an entire podcast just about the fallout from this film, couldn't you? Um, yeah. Lots of interesting things, as you say, uh, massively overscheduled, over budget. Um, really, related in no small part due to Simino's exacting standards having things like a, a street set moved six feet apart yep. by dismantling both sides and moving them <laughs> each three feet apart rather than just moving one side six feet apart because by, he's insane. By all accounts, he went full Kubrick on this, right? <laughs> you hit the nail on the head when you said about pace because that is absolutely... Now that I've sat down and watched this film, it's absolutely my takeaway from it is that it takes an awfully long time to say nothing or or it takes an awfully long time to say very little. And yeah. that's perfectly fine in the context of all of that extra time being spent fleshing out characters. But there's never really a sense that we get to know any of these characters in no. any depth whatsoever. And Semino has all the time in the world to explore these people and many of them I can imagine panning out to be very interesting characters, but absolutely, again, you hit the nail right on the head. John Hurt's character is so front front and foremost and the, the prologue seems to the prologue seems to insinuate that he will be a major character yeah. in the film and that this is someone who's going to have something to say and who will serve some real purpose in this film. And actually he is so superfluous to proceedings that you quite rightly you could cut out every frame with John Hurt in it and <laughs> still have the same movie. Uh, it begs the question why the prologue? Yes. But I can't help but feel that there is a really good hour forty five movie in here. <laughs> that would retain all of the good stuff and none of the other stuff. And I know that there's always the push for, well, if there is a five and a half hour cut of that, then really we should see that to appreciate. But if, if that five and a half hour cut incorporated two hours of additional character exposition, my question would be, did <laughs> Samino make, was he playing the opposites game? and cut out the stuff he needed and leaving the stuff he should have cut. Um, I don't think there's an argument to be made there that I hear so many people harking on about that we need to see the five and a half hour cut to uh, to view it um, as no, it was intended. You. No, I yeah, <laughs> let's, let's just set about actually the director's cut of this film should be literally half the length. Yeah. And I feel like you would have a really good movie there. Um, and I would have no objection to sitting down watching that again. There you go. If any of you have got a copy from the Criterion Collection kicking about and you fancy you fancy a week in eye movie, 
do do send us a link to the results. Um, I'd I'd like to uh, I'd like I'd like to investigate that possibility, but I have neither the time nor the inclination to do it myself, <laughs> uh, nor the skill, I might add. But yeah, it's an interesting film, and it's it's obviously it's one of those. It's one of those now mythological films uh, which achieved that status for all the wrong reasons. And yeah, we, you know, maybe someday when we're stuck for a topic, we'll go back and we can talk about that whole story in another podcast. But um, there is no shortage of resources on why Heaven's Gate um, hit cinemas and left as little impact as it did and uh, why it quite had the effect on people's careers that it did. So um, go and knock yourself out. Yeah, I mean, I think I could probably talk about this film for at least another half an hour, but it'd be almost yeah. nothing to do with the film itself, and it's all yeah. the stuff that happened either around or because of the film, and how most of it's actually not really true. Yes. Um, but yeah, that's perhaps a tale for another day, or you can go off and do your own exercises on that one, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's probably worth watching. I mean, if you are mm-hmm. the sort of person who is listening to a podcast about film, then yeah. it's certainly worth watching, even if I wouldn't want to recommend it in the traditional yeah. sense. I don't think it's worthy of the push for re-examination of people saying that it's uh, well, no. it's actually in the top 100 American films. No, no, it's not. Um, no. But it certainly shouldn't be in the bottom 100 either. Um, it is... It has its own foibles, uh, but taken yeah. on its own terms, it is. Uh, you can at least see what he was going for, and I think Samuel hit quite a lot of the things he was going for, but mm-hmm. whiffed on a few other things. It's uh, r- roundly in the middle of his uh, output of work, um, and and certainly deserves nothing like the reputation that it has as being an automatic mitigated yeah. disaster. There's far more yeah. fallout associated with this film than there has any reasonable reason to yes. be, but who who knows what was going on in the minds of audiences in uh, 1980. <laughs> If the Deer Hunter is Semino on peak Oscar-worthy form and Heaven's Gate an essay on what historical sources will tell you was a suicidal doubling down on subsequent hubris, then Year of the Dragon surely sees the director slumming it in the wake of a slapped wrist, or perhaps I should say Chinese burn. Now, slumming it in this case comes with several noteworthy caveats, not least of all a script by Oliver Stone, and Mickey Rourke as leading man. But in relation to previous achievements, this is definitely a qualitative downshift. And by Jove, how far and fast the mighty fell in the wake of public and critical (laughs) vitriol. Year of the Dragon is pretty much a genre movie, afforded a budget. And I don't say that in a derogatory sense, nor do I imply any shame in a director of Semino's prior standing tackling genre material. I would cite the success of Steven Soderbergh within this arena in particular. And if you haven't already listened to our August 10th episode, I implore you to skip back to hear in how high a regard we hold Scorsese's Shutter Island. What is almost immediately evident in this instance, however, is how derivative and uninspired Semino's effort is, and just how easily Year of the Dragon blends into the turgid landscape of mid-tier 80s cop gangster dramas. Rourke is Stanley White, a police captain and former NAM veteran, hey, who has been transferred from Brooklyn, to take charge of policing Manhattan's Chinatown district. Not that anyone expects Stan to do much. The long-standing agreement betwixt the triads, the mafia and the city seems to suit all parties just fine. Uh, Even as some young upstart Chinese hoodlums threaten to undermine the relative peace by assassinating triad boss Jackie Wong and then shooting a mafia-protected store owner in the midst of the funeral procession. Stanley has other ideas, mind you, and he certainly didn't watch his buddies die face down in the mud (laughs) just to let a completely unrelated Manhattan underworld demographic maintain the peace in a way that doesn't seem to bother anyone else much. 
Our protagonist, nominal application of the term, sets his his stall out in the first reel by interrupting a board meeting of triad bosses, seemingly just to shout, f*** you, at all of them, (laughs) and paint a bullseye on his own back. The Supreme Court has, after all, roundly rejected prior restraint, before proceeding to casually place himself and others in harm's way at any available opportunity throughout the remainder of the movie. (laughs) It is a resplendent opening gambit, which claims a spectacular victory for both passive-aggressive as well as openly-aggressive racism, (laughs) and also the visual magnificence of older Chinese gentlemen in sharp tailoring smoking. However, it also signifies the strict adherence with which Stone script commits itself to genre tropes that were firmly established at least a decade prior. Rather than pursue his stated remit of clamping down on the street gangs, an act that could be comfortably achieved and readily accommodated by having asked the triad elders, please can you clamp down on these street gangs, Stan (laughs) decides instead to busy himself harassing Joey Tai, John Lone, the son-in-law of Jackie Wong. Do you see what happens, Joey? Do you see what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps? <laughs> this... <laughs> I'm glad you appreciated that. <laughs> this proves narratively convenient as it allows Stan to trip over the revelation that it is in fact Joey who has been manipulating the street gangs in a calculated power grab for the triad crown. You're killing your father-in-law, Joey! <laughs> Mush. <laughs> Mush. <laughs> Oh dear, there's nothing sadder than a man laughing at his own jokes. (laughs) Much violence does of course ensue as the street gangs escalate their agitation of the established order and both Joey and Stan endure increasingly combative relationships within their respective organisations. Year of the Dragon certainly has the potential to transcend its trash roots. However, it is mired in what I perceive to be too much apathy from those involved <laughs> and too little invention or pushing, of the, uh, or pushing of the boundaries. This is a movie that dearly wants to be taken seriously while at the same time painting its characters in the broadest of strokes. Stanley, of course, has marital issues and a piece of feisty ass on the side in the form of an English-language Chinatown news correspondent. His superiors do a lot of tutting about how he's a good guy and he really ought to quit with the Nam shit. Joey Tai is a two-dimensional scumbag about whose motivations we learn nothing. (laughs) And you can spot a street gang member by the fact they dress as though they've just come off the set as extras from the video for Michael Jackson's Bad, (laughs) as no gang member ever has in the history of gangs and or garment manufacturing. Hang on, I saw that documentary, The Warriors. I'm pretty sure of this. <laughs> I, I see what's going was on that, here. Was that one of Michael Moore's, was it? <laughs> yeah. um, chief, chief among the movie's problems is that Stan himself is a self-pitying, racist, misogynistic, possibly rapist prick whose continual self-abasement in labelling himself a Pollock apparently provides justification enough for mocking everyone else as a chink, demonstrating an abject failure to grasp the understanding that owning being an asshole does not excuse one from being an asshole. (laughs) Of Stan's relationship with news correspondent Tracy Zhu, mono-monikered Ariane, about whose background I know nothing, but I'm assuming was she a model or something like that? Yes, she was a model and swiftly went back to modelling. Yes. On the back of this. Yes, uh, understandably so, because the less said, the better. Unless you want a discourse on the portrayal of verbal, physical and sexual abuse of secondary female characters as seemingly desirable qualities in a heroic character who (laughs) is apparently driven by a sense of moral righteousness... (laughs) Uh, Let me get back to you on that. 
As an aside, I'd also like to highlight David Mansfield's score, a frequently confusing callback to Stanley Meyer's work on The Deer Hunter, which one assumes was intended to craftily inject some pathos into proceedings, were it not that it ultimately comes across as either having been conceived entirely in a bubble, or as though everyone involved forgot this wasn't a movie about a blind shoemaker living in the war-torn landscape of rural Eastern Europe during World War II. (laughs) Having said all of which, there is enough batty incidental banter and at times borderline slapstick to both A. Make the movie enjoyable to some marginal degree and B. Hint at a possible trace of underlying irony that, if it was in fact intended, has fallen clumsily from the movie's grasp as it barrels (laughs) headlong into baffling mediocrity. And then I've put in brackets, ask me about exploding kitchen taps. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, Year of the Dragon is a curious beast that no doubt had the best intentions but feels like it was left on autopilot a little too long and while it may not crash into the goddamn mountain it definitely loses its landing gear while skidding to a halt on the runway Six dead, 17 injured On which failed analogy that confuses dragons with aeroplanes I defer to you, Scott (laughs) Um, I don't know where to start with this film really It's it shit, really. It, there's a lot of things going on in this film. There's a lot of <laughs> content here, but uh, none of it feels like it's been merged into one film. It just feels like no. random pages thrown into a, a script generator. Um, I mean, for example, at one point, more or less out of nowhere, White launches on this spiel about how Chinese labourers were discriminated against in marginalised during construction <laughs> yeah. of the railroads. Fine. And then erased from the history books. <laughs> yeah. Unlike the entirety of Heaven's Gate, that is accurate. Yes. However, it has no place in this film. It was put in entirely and organically. No. And, and, just it, no and it suggests a level film. of respect and understanding that is then completely undermined by his adherence to calling them all chinks. Yeah, yeah. There's just no flow to it. It's probably the most interesting point in the whole film is that, well, according to the internet's arbiter of ultimate truths, Wikipedia, uh, this film is, amongst other things, intended as an exploration of ethnicity, racism and stereotypes. Presumably Mm -hmm. the same thing you would say about Roy Chubby Blown, or (laughs) Andrew Dice Clay, or the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, (laughs) So much racism and epithets thrown about the film, just... All the time. Uh, apparently, the excuse for that being that White's referring to himself with the same terms, but if your defence is it's not racist if you just hate everyone, doesn't really wash. Uh, I, I don't know. I just Perhaps I'm a bleeding heart, ivory tower liberal, but I just prefer it when we're not throwing venom at groups of people. And partially, I suppose, that's the point of writing it this way. You're not supposed to have any sympathy for the gangs, mm. after all. But the use of language is in no way at all examined by the film. So it no. just winds up being another element that sits uncomfortably in the mix of this uh, little beast. Uh, and that's a minor point, and probably doesn't really deserve that much attention to it, but to be honest, I struggle to come up with a lot of other noteworthy points about Year of the Dragon. Um, mm. It's an entertaining enough watch first time round. I cannot imagine for a second that it warrants repeat viewing. Uh, Rourke, I think, doesn't give a bad turn exactly, but he's a little undermined <laughs> by playing a character that's supposed to be 15 years older than he is. Yeah. And he gives the impression of a child wearing his father's clothes. Yeah. And uh, and, and chewing, <coughs> chewing lines written by someone who apparently has the intellect of a man 15 years younger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I guess that's how you say. Ariane Kazumi's uh, love interest is one of the rare instances where a Razzie actually seems well deserved. <laughs> uh, and how she got cast is a mystery, um, but it doesn't matter all that much. Yeah. <laughs> 
so so yes, this is um, and the rest of the supports all right, I guess, but barely featured. Then it's uh, very much a Mickey Rourke vehicle in times when such beasts roam the land, and um, it's living or dying by his performance, mm. and it's all right, I guess. Uh, it's by no means a neo noir classic by any stretch of the imagination. No. And I think tellingly, John John Lone's character in Rush Hour Two has more depth than <laughs> than uh, than his character here. Yes, and it was another failure uh, commercially, at least in part because of a somewhat understandable protest from Asian American groups due to the mm. language used and the possible negative effects it would have on tourism if people believed that it was a routine occurrence for automatic weapon-based slaughter to be on the menu at Chinese restaurants. <laughs> 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 so I wasn't I wasn't aware of that backlash. I haven't actually read into any of the background of the movie at all, but it's entirely understandable. <laughs> that reaction does not surprise me at all. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's not it's it's not a tourist board advert for Chinatown, certainly. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, Which I understand to be pretty much as safe a, a district as any other part of Manhattan. Yes. <laughs> oh, Unless Michael Sabino's around, in which case you better be ducking. Um it's <laughs> It's all a bit hard-boiled, but more in the John Woo sense than in the uh, mm. sense of it being a uh, in a war sense. Um, it's I don't know. It's a fine film. I, I, I didn't I didn't regret watching it or anything, but no. I will I will never watch this again. Did, and most did likely, did you detect a hint it. of irony there as well, or did, am I just imagining that there was? I just felt like there were one or two moments where I thought this movie can't possibly can't possibly be taking itself seriously at this point. I, f- I felt like the tone of the film had been misjudged in the edit or or by Semino himself, and that there was this little aftertaste of sort of like, okay, I'm supposed to be viewing this as much as like a black comedy as anything else, but I don't know. I, f- I was really, really confused by this movie. It certainly would explain a lot because it is just so taken to the extremes and points where you would not expect it to do so if it was trying to have any grounding in reality at all. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that that would make more sense. And look, Michael Cimino is by no stretch of the imagination a dummy. He knows what he's mm. doing. Um, I think he may have mm. problems actually executing on it, but he would have had a plan in mind. It was not just, here's a generic schlock piece that would uh, could have been handled by essentially anyone. Uh, he's trying to put some spin in it, I am sure, but I think he's whiffed on what he's right. actually wound up with. Again, this is another one that I think he says was uh, where producers were, you know, cutting, you know, making too many changes to his cut and that kind of thing, and he, he'll kind of blame it on that. And you know, he's probably got a point. I'm sure mm. there was something that he's done which was a, a bit more uh, considered. I mean, you know, you, mm. Yale graduates tend not to be total dummies, and this should have been greater. I mean, I can't imagine Mickey Rourke, who incidentally, I, I'd i forgotten what Mickey Rourke looked like when he was younger. Every time I think of Mickey Rourke now, I think of him from The Wrestler. Um, yeah. So I was surprised when I was watching this for half an hour and going, I can't remember why. I didn't, yeah. didn't remember reading Bruce Willis was in this film. And I was like, oh, oh no, it's Mickey Rourke, right, okay. That makes more sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, and these guys that he's got in this film have enough talent to probably be doing better than what they're actually doing here. Uh, this isn't just a, a or just shouldn't have been a generic period piece, but I think this might actually be one instance where Samino's mm. continual excuse of producers got in there and messed with his cut might actually be accurate. Um, and it is nonetheless a movie that is is could only really have been made in the eighties, right? Yes. That, yeah, it's just it's just absolutely an eighties an movie and an example of the type of eighties movie that we should probably 
be glad we left behind with the 80s. But yeah, it was an entertaining yes. watch. The first 15, 20 minutes of this film, I thought I was going to absolutely love it. Yeah. I was like, I absolutely loved uh, Mickey Rock's character that when he walks into that when he walks into that board meeting yeah. of triad members, what an amazing scene! I spent I laughed out loud at it. I thought I love this guy. He's a total dick, <laughs> and it is going to be amazing. At the time, by the time you honestly feel almost feel sympathy for the triad characters, right? <laughs> and I thought this movie's going to do something really interesting and like argue a case for you know these criminal organizations live hand in hand with the city and and perhaps there's something to be said for turning a blind eye you know and allowing them to self-regulate but it's not that <laughs> film at all and by the time you get to the end of the film and you know his character who has shown scant regard for the feelings of anyone else uh, in his pursuit of what he perceives to be this this righteous path through the police department uh, willingly alienating himself from his peers and his superiors um you know including his wife yeah. who gets her comeuppance quite quite brutally <laughs> and then all of a sudden this character who has given us no reason to feel compelled to um, sympathise with him or um, you know feel any parallel between ourselves and him whatsoever and I don't know maybe there are people out there who watch this film and think yeah I'm, that's it I totally understand Mickey Rourke's character in this movie he's a great guy and he's he's not a great guy and then all of a sudden in the last 20 minutes the film expects you to feel sympathy for the guy because he's a bit upset now that the wife who he plainly didn't give a shit about before <laughs> has been has been brutally murdered because of his hubris um, <laughs> like his ridiculous ridiculous it's not even naive hubris because he must have known this is what was going to happen he walked into a boardroom full of triads who were trying to appease him and suggest that, you know, just keep your head down, you'll get a promotion out of this, we'll take care of the rest. And instead he chose to shout <laughs> F you at them, basically, and insult them. Um, just a just a really strange concoction of a movie that I don't... I'm none the wiser as to what it was trying to say or what the purpose of this movie was. And honestly, in the last, the sort of climactic showdown um, sequence, mm. it feels like something from, I don't know, a Lethal Weapon movie more yeah. than anything else. Just really strange. And yeah, some real missteps in there. Um, I, it can't possibly be making a case to be an accurate portrayal of how the criminal underworld operates in places no, like I mean, Chinatown, yeah, I can't if imagine. If nothing else, I'm fairly certain that the head of the triads are not going down to the docks to pick up drugs mm. themselves in their car. <laughs> that doesn't seem to ring true to me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or just sitting sitting openly in like very, very down market restaurants where, you know, with no bodyguards um, there to vet people approaching them with knives, for example. <laughs> um, yes, um, there's, there's a whole... A whole lot wrong with this. I could almost, I could almost talk about this movie more than any of um, Semino's others that I've, I've watched. But at least as much as Heaven's Gate. But I feel like we've probably expended too much effort in it already, Scott. Fair enough. Uh, let's crash on then uh, to the Sicilian. Now, uh, if one thing uh, Year of the Dragon did uh, managed to do it was. 
uh, cement his reputation a little bit, or at least rehab it somewhat. Uh, he did manage to bring Year of the Dragon in on time and on budget, which was a, a shocking occurrence for everyone. Remarkable. Uh, yet a mere two years later, and uh, Dino De Laurentiis has allowed him to uh, bro- break free of the studio sound stages. Actually, that's one thing about Year of the Dragon. It was shot pretty much entirely on sound stages. Yeah, apparently even fooled Stanley Kubrick, according to internet reports, and um, yeah, yeah. it is really well done. Um, but uh, for the Sicilian, it's another sprawling on-location epic. Uh, the Sicilian is based on Godfather author Mario Puzo's uh, book about Salvatore Giuliano, the real-life gangster, uh, with a mythos that has a bit of the Robin Hood about him. Now, of course, when you think about casting a character with a description of Sicilian gangster, you naturally think of French, well, let's call him an actor, Christopher Lambert. Uh, Of course, who else? Uh, Anyway, he takes the role of Giuliano, initially a black marketeer smuggling food into heavily rationed villages during World War II under the nose of the government. He's busted during one of his runs uh, with his cousin and best friend Gaspar Piscotta, played by John Turturro, uh, leading to a shootout that sees him critically wounded and a police officer dead. Piscotta takes him to a local monastery where he recovers, but realises he's now a wanted outlaw. Uh, Giuliano and Piscotta escape to Camarata Mountains, and the two eventually hatch a plan to set up, uh, to set up in the organised crime business for themselves. They start freeing prisoners and stealing grain from the local landed gentry and distributing that amongst the poor, increasing his fame and causing others to flock to his banners. He grows more confident and audacious with each action and soon winds up uh, with him in the crosshairs of the church, uh, the state and the mafia, all of whom he refuses to bow to. This sets him on a collision course with these groups who attempt to remove the threat he faces in various ways, making Galeano rightly more paranoid as time goes on. Uh, There's a subplot in here somewhere about a love interest, but it's so wildly underdeveloped that I can remember no details about it whatsoever. Now, there's not a great point uh, picking over the minutiae of how this film has turned out, because there's the rather glaring central fact that somehow, presumably on a dare, Christopher Lambert was cast in the lead of this film. (laughs) In terms of effect, you might as well have cast Pee Wee Herman as a lead, or Rod Hull, or Emu, all of which might have delivered slightly more convincing central performances (laughs) than the slowly unfolding train wreck that's found its way onto screen. Uh, I mean... The rest of the cast are generally fine, although probably only just about fine, which is disappointing when you've got the likes of Terence Stamp parading about. And Samino was coming under terrible pressure to cut this film down in running time. And for once, I think this had a bit more room to breathe. While Heaven's Gate spent a lot of time on nothing, nothing consequential, this runs at very much the opposite end of the spectrum, crashing on through events, making it hard to get a feel of the time frame we're supposed to be talking about in the film. It just seems incredible. Duly, uh, unduly compressed. Uh, but, as mentioned, that's not all that important. The film lives or lives or dies on Lambert's performance and charisma, neither of which showed up for the party. He's <laughs> dire, and so, sadly, the entire film is dragged down to his level. A pity, as this is, this is a story that has real potential. Who wouldn't like to see Robin Hood mashed up with The Godfather? But Sicilian is a banal lifeless mess and easily Simino's weakest film that we've spoken about so far. Uh, There is a really great uh, film in here somewhere about this man's life. This is not it. Um, It sounds uh, like we're firmly in the wilderness years here. Very much so. I mean, 
you're picking out the small the small mercies you can get where you can. Again, it looks absolutely gorgeous. If you put Michael Cimino on a set uh, out in a, the real world, he will find a way to make it look beautiful. And lots of really lovely shots of like the internals of these uh, grandiose buildings, where are the the church uh, church buildings and where your bishops are talking and uh, state houses and things like that. Looks really great. Film itself absolutely dire. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, the the leader's choice is just entirely incorrect. I cannot, for the life of me, imagine what they were thinking with this uh, puzzling, puzzling choice. And really, just that alone sinks everything around it. He is a, a very big lee hole in the bottom of this ship's hull, and uh, everything is just pouring out of him. Yeah, sadly, not one that is worth going in for. <laughs> Again, as I say some real potential in this story and certainly it should have been a really good film if you'd test almost anyone, almost anyone in the world apart from Christopher Lambert. I don't know what they were thinking. I cannot get past it at all. Christopher, Christopher Lambert's not even that convincing as Christopher Lambert. <laughs> I've never understood his casting in pretty much anything. Was it... Um, uh, what was the film? Uh, what was the best on film? Was it um, Subway or something? It was called that he got his career break in, mm, right? Yeah, I'd kind of like to go back and watch Subway just to see whether Christopher Lambert ever deserved <laughs> the opportunity to transition to anything else, um, because it seems like there was some there was some head of steamy built up there, but um, I have I have never witnessed evidence to suggest that. <laughs> He has any acting skill whatsoever nope. in the movies I've seen. <laughs> I can only imagine it's probably cast here. I mean, what year was this and where was it in relation to Highlander? This was 87. Right. So was that just after Highlander? Mm, perhaps. I can't remember. I, I can't be bothered picking up my phone to check on account of Christopher <laughs> Lambert. So let's just say, yes, yes, I'm probably right. You'd probably end up being cast in this because you know that weird thing where Hollywood look at a film which has performed well and they say, well, who was in that film? Um, yeah. Oh, Christopher Lambert was in Highlander. Okay, audiences must love him. <laughs> yeah, er- ergo, <laughs> give it, give him to Samino. Yeah, he's also foreign, and France is close to Italy. That'll do. Yes, <laughs> that'll do. Exactly. That'll Does do. he have an accent? Great. <laughs> close enough. <laughs> uh, if only they got Christopher Walken in to do it in Christopher Walken's accent, it would still have been better. <laughs> <sighs> Oh, my days. And that leaves us with what exactly, Scott? Uh, we still have two to get through, but neither of which will take particularly long to get through. Uh, the next up was a, a three-year gap between Sicilian and Desperate Hours. Desperate Hours is a remake of a 1955 Humphrey Vogart vehicle, which I must confess I've not seen. Hmm. And it seems that he's finally taken on board Clint Eastwood's advice after Heaven's Gate, which is that he should go off and direct a small-scale, more intimate movie. He's again tapped up Mickey Rourke to play a sociopathic convict named Michael Bosworth, who escapes from prison with the help of his defence lawyer, Nancy Briars, played by Kelly Lynch, who, for reasons that the film does not see fit to tell us, is in love with him. Uh, He leaves her behind with orders to say that he forced her at gunpoint to help him, with instructions to join him later on. Bosworth is soon reunited with his brother Wally, played by Elias Scotius, and their dim-witted partner Albert, played by David Morse. They look for a place to lay low, settling more or less at random on the home of Tim Cornell, played by Anthony Hopkins and his family. 
Tim was previously busy trying to repair his relationship to his estranged wife uh, Nora, played by Mimi Rogers, but they find themselves hostage in their own home, uh, plotting a way to escape or overpower the three men invading their house. Meanwhile, the feds have not been convinced in the slightest by Nancy's act, leading them to convince her to betray Bosworth in return for a lighter sentence. They soon find out where Bosworth went and arrive en masse for the spot of the old sieging, and, well, you can guess how that ends up. Now, there's been a small degree of truncation in that plot recap in the main to gloss over events, uh, to gloss over a few events that don't make a great deal of sense even in the full context of the film. Surprise, surprise, Samino had another battle over the cut of this film and lost, uh, with him claiming that producers butchered it, and I have perhaps some sympathy with this, because if nothing else it would explain the uneven, choppy pacing of the film that just absolutely ruins the flow of the film. This perhaps also marks the time that Michael Cimino either suffered hearing loss or perhaps had some sort of bizarre injury that destroyed his ability to select appropriate scores for films, as <laughs> both this and uh, but in particular both this and his uh, final film, but in particular this film have ludicrous, intrusive, bombastic scores that overwhelm the performances and gives everything a horrible melodramatic tone that really undercuts the rest of the film's narrative which, it must be said, was doing a good enough job of undercutting itself, with no real drama or intrigue to speak of. The characters are uniformly flat and lifeless, and we'd learn nothing about any of these characters if they didn't out uh, have someone outright read the dramatis personae for them. It's particularly obnoxious in Bosworth's case, who we're informed has a genius-level intellect. We have to be informed of this, because there's not a single shred of evidence for that assertion in the rest of the script. It should be noted that the screenplay was written by Lawrence Connor and Mark Rosenthal, who were recently both found guilty of writing Superman IV The Quest for Peace. You'd think that this cast, even if we're only talking about Rourke and Hopkins, would have enough charisma and talent between them to provide some interest, but Rourke's off chewing the scenery again and Hopkins seems bored of this entirely and I can't say I blame him. The two leads might as well be in different films for all the chemistry they have, and the supporting cast are playing well below par also. Uh, now, the, the sort of this sort of home invasion film has had something of a renaissance in recent years, but even if they've whetted your appetite, this is by no means recommended viewing. I've not seen the original, but it surely can't be any worse than this, so perhaps seek that out instead. Alternatively, a similar level of enjoyment can be had from a hot knife and a spot of DIY gelding. Do not watch. <laughs> Slammed. <laughs> yes, another film where I get the central idea is not bad, but the execution is all sorts of terrible. Again, smaller, intimate, but unfortunately, Samino cannot drag character out of anyone. Uh, this seems to be a recurring theme through pretty much everything he's done. He's he has characters in there that you learn nothing about, and they somehow are vet, written or scripted or directed in a way that just you don't learn anything about any of these characters. It makes it very difficult to care about any of them. You, you can't mm. establish them properly. You can't develop them. You can't give them any sort of journey. Uh, he just has people wandering around on screen, and it feels almost robotic in nature in many cases I'm interested in what you said about the score um, I, I feel like that was something that ties back to Year of the Dragon as yes. though he's had some sort of um, early onset score Alzheimer's or something because I feel, <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like that was a very odd trend that had exactly the same effect as you describe here that it very yeah. much undercut the, the events on screen and uh, it tried to shoehorn in a level of 
pathos into that film that it just it wasn't doing anything to not not just deserve, but it wasn't setting its stall out as something which was seeking pathos. But yeah. um yeah, curious. So I'm inter- I'm interested in your comment there. And the last film we're gonna talk about tonight. Uh, the last one uh, was a gap of six years. It was nineteen ninety six with the Sun Chaser. This is his final full length feature. He's done a few kind of I think documentaries, he wrote some books and he did a a kind of third of one film, I think. But this was his final full-length feature. Uh, in this, we have The Sun Chaser. We have Woody Harrelson playing Dr. Michael Reynolds, a successful oncologist who seems to be on track for a promotion, which will no doubt help with the repayments on his flash car. This future is derailed when a juvenile prisoner, John Cedar's Brandon Blue Monroe, is brought in to see him. Discovering that he has mere weeks to live, Blue stages a breakout and takes Reynolds hostage starting out on a trip across country that leads to the land of his Navajo ancestors uh, with the whacked out notion of salvation at the top of a mountain and a lake that promises that a lake that a book promises will cure him better than any of this chemotherapy garbage. Uh, Reynolds is forced to go along with this, but over the course of the trip, the two bond and when Blue's condition worsens, Reynolds breaks the law himself in order to help Blue reach his goal. The reasons for their bonding or for a medical professional to go along with his magical claptrap remain entirely unexamined by the film. Narratively, this is again very stripped back, and I get the impression that this is supposed to be overflowing with character, but John Cena is not up to the task, and while external evidence would have you think Harrelson would be able to cut the mustard, this was the same year he appeared in The People vs. Larry Flint, he does not. There is no mustard cut during the entire production of this film. All the mustard remained entirely intact. <laughs> uh, falling, <laughs> falling somewhere quite awkwardly between a road trip, a hostage drama, mysticism and a buddy flick, uh, this plot does not convince in the slightest and the characters are difficult, if not impossible, to warm to. The whole endeavour seems roundly amateurish, with only a few of Samino's trademark beautiful nature shots towards the end of the film giving you any indication that this is a film from an Oscar-winning director and not some made-for-TV Hallmark Channel production line schedule filler. If Heaven's Gate could be characterised by how interesting a film it is to think about on pretty much every level, it's sad that Samino's later career and Sun Chaser in particular give us so little to talk about. There's not even a gloriously failed execution of a grand idea. This is a small film with small ideas and doesn't do them justice. Um, according to Box Office Mojo, this film's domestic total gross was somewhere under 22,000, sneaking out for one week in 23 cinemas, <sighs> going out with a barely heard whimper rather than a bang, and it does not seem exactly fitting given the heights that Simino reached, or in any case in a lot of his films, strived to reach, but it's hard to argue that Sun Chaser deserves anything other than to be roundly ignored. He's a difficult character <clears throat> to break down, really. So, you know, I know um, there's plenty of call from people who say that, oh, had um, had Heaven's Gate not misfired so badly, what what different output he might have he might have had. But I feel like there's enough evidence to the contrary to suggest that actually, you know, something like the Deer Hunter might have might really have been a one off. Um, there's nothing else that sticks out amongst his portfolio um to quite the same degree as that or that had anywhere near the impact of that movie um and i i just i just find it difficult to get on board which is not i mean obviously now he's he's sadly departed i i don't i you know i don't wish any 
um, creative's career to come to an end because yeah. they've popped off this mortal coil. But um, I don't. I'm not convinced by the argument that it was all down to Heaven's Gate um, and the lack of opportunity that its failure to succeed. Um, you know, there and afforded him. I don't see enough evidence in the movies, his output, bef- you know, from what you've said before and certainly from what I've witnessed afterwards, um, mm. to suggest that, you know, this was anything other than the deer hunter was kind of, I suppose, a lucky strike or a, or a moment of clarity for, for someone who otherwise struggled to, as you say, reach the heights he clearly, clearly strode, strove for um, in a great deal of um, cases, but really wasn't able to pull together. Yeah, and it's not as though he was not given chances after Heaven's Gate. Yeah. Because if nothing else, this, this something like the Sicilian should have been an opportunity for him to knock something out of the park. It comes mm-hmm. almost ready-made. The, the story almost tells itself and he managed to not tell it. Mm-hmm. And and even the, the smaller films that he's talking about, there is things you could have done with these characters to make them interesting. You could have dragged out more interesting performances. But I mean, he's worked with some really good actors over the course of his career. And th- with the exception of The Deer Hunter and arguably parts of Heaven's Gate, I wouldn't even say all of that, mm-hmm. he's failed to get anything like a compelling performance from any of them. I mean, it's tough to make Terence Stamp boring, but that's what he did in The Sicilian. Uh, Woody Harrelson, uh, certainly at this point in his career, uh, should be able to coast through that film on charisma alone, and he is the blandest, most boring performance I've seen from him and it's the sort of film you could imagine him getting when he just stopped uh, you know, being in Cheers and it was like his first film role or something like that. Mm-hmm. It has that sort of ring to it but no, this guy by this point had been in a number of kind of you know successful films where he was a, a very compelling performer in it and he simply isn't in The Sun Chaser. Now of course he didn't really have much to work with but... I've seen a lot of films where people, where great actors are not given very much to work with and he managed to do something with it, either by prompting by the director but, or however that kind of alchemy works. It's hard to yeah, say. But, just by sheer force of charisma. Yeah, but, but Semino has never been able to get that out of anyone. Um, if he hadn't kind of struck gold with uh, an on-form De Niro and Walken and The Deer Hunter, you have to question whether that would have been the same. I kind of question that he have mm. much input into that. I mean, I, I get the impression that Samino would have been a ter- terrific landscape photographer. Um, yeah. He might have been happy with that if he didn't have to deal yeah. with all these pesky humans running about ru- ruining up the you shot. Know, or wor- working as a nature documentarian on the Discovery Channel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's, when you look back over his career, it, it is tough to see that he's had a, a great amount of impact on it. Uh, Curiously, I think for me at least, the film that actually works best in terms of what it was written to achieve and actually went out and achieved it would be uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. It's one of the few things. It's a it's a relatively smaller scale film, and it's uh, something that is nothing like the lofty pretensions that he would have later on in his career, and certainly doesn't make any kind of points about the uh, uh, society or anything like that. But in terms of just being a bit of entertainment, it probably works better and has fewer flaws than all the rest of the stuff that we talked about. Uh, Deer Hunter is, of course, his best film, uh, certainly as far as I'm concerned. Um, But the rest of his career just doesn't hit anything like the potential you would think he would have having seen The Deer Mm. Hunter. Um, And now, sadly, we will never know whether he had it in him to pull something out of the bag. Yes, uh, I take it you're broadly on board with that. You know, you've only seen the three, but you, you've probably seen very little evidence in Year of the Dragon that he's of it. Yes, yes. But, I mean, I'm and then in that respect, I'm certainly very glad that I watched Year of the Dragon. <laughs> it was an experience, um, and I feel like I 
feel like I learned something from it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's very, very clear that the Deer Hunter is the standout work here. As I say, there's a really good hour and three quarters to be had from yeah. Heaven's Gate. But, you know, again, it, it's the it's the first example that we've seen of what seems to be a trap that he's fallen into from what we've discussed and, and what you've said about the films I haven't seen. Um, he seems to... He seems to have been a director who had a great deal of difficulty deciding what should make it to the screen and what yeah. shouldn't. <laughs> a lot of it seems to, a lot of his folly seems to have come down to, you know, poor editing skills, uh, or, 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 you know, not the, you know, the, um, the necessary degree of understanding of what should happen in the edit. And yeah. I don't know enough about the, the man and his process to uh, to understand whether or not those were down to editing decisions or, you know, maybe it's just, hey, my editor shafted me. Um, I, I find <laughs> it hard to believe. I mean, it's still predominantly a director's choice. Um, and he just seems he seems to have been unable to distinguish between the the cromulent material and the superfluous stuff. Um, and I think Heaven's Gate is the best example we saw of that. But it's it's a motif that crops up in in one form or of another throughout. Uh, by the sounds of it, the rest of you know his body of work post post the Deer Hunter. So yeah, it's it's. Um, it's a difficult it's a difficult case to assess but i feel like the the balance of evidence rests on the side of yes lucky lucky strike but that that just feels like we're being harsh against a guy who's no longer here to defend himself it, it feels harsh but you've got to call them like you see them uh we've yes. spoken about a, a good number of films there and most of them haven't been very good no. so so i don't i don't imagine um old mikey's going to be turning in his grave too much at our humble podcast so i'm mm. sure he's well we we know he's faced harsher criticism um so yes no i won't be losing any sleep over it but uh yeah it, it feels more like this is someone who who squandered um their opportunities rather than having been denied them yes and i think that probably just about does it for us and our relationship with old mikey Simino. Yes, I think it does. Um, just before we wrap up, uh, we'll mention one one Twitter comment we've had in from our good friends oh, over at the Magic yes. Lantern uh, podcast. That's at lantern underscore cast on the Twitters. Again, Twitter, a tremendous podcast that you should be listening to. What are those shameless miscreants well, saying we, to it? We were asking what's for people's favourite Samino film, and I think the general response has been, who's Michael Samino? Um, <laughs> so, but... but the response was from them was that Heaven's Gate remains their favourite, unfairly maligned. Year of the Dragon is my dark horse candidate, uh, to which we think, Ooh. well, we, we can agree with partially that Heaven's Gate is unfairly maligned for a lot of things. However, it's yeah. uh, there's a lot of maligning you can do to it quite fairly, I feel. And I think we've done some of that in this podcast. <laughs> and Year of the Dragon, I, I assume you're drunk. <laughs> I... I <laughs> <laughs> but see now, knowing the quality of of the work that Cole and Erica put out, I I now really want them to do an episode on either Heaven's Gate or, um, perhaps slightly less. Well, no more so. Perhaps Year of the Dragon, the the gauntlet is the gauntlet is thrown. I I would love to see where the positive has come for in Year of the Dragon. Yes, yes. I demand satisfaction. 
So yes, I think we'll, we'll wrap up at that point. As mentioned, if you want to get us on Twitter, that's at FudsOnFilm. You can hit us up on Twitter. Uh, sorry, you can hit us up on Facebook as well. It's facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm or simply email us podcast at FudsOnFilm.com and uh, we'll be back uh, fairly soon. We'll be back on the 10th with a look at uh, Manhunter and Red Dragon. Uh, until then, please take care of yourself and each other. I am Scott Morris. It's goodbye from me, and I'm sure it's also goodbye from my friend Craig Eastman. We don't need you anymore. <laughs> Ta-da! Bye. Bye.